Uh, good morning. For those who don't know me, my name's Anthony, and extraordinarily enough, if you do know me, my name is also Anthony. Um, it's good to be together today, even if it is remotely. Um, let's pray. Our Lord, please, by your Holy Spirit, please calm our hearts so that as your word is explained and explored, you uh, can change us. Please help us to meet with Jesus today. Amen. Um, so this is the first in a new four-part series called Meeting Jesus. Um, and it's common for people to have an opinion about Jesus or to know a bit about him. Um, but in this series, we want to look at a few of the times people from all walks of life really met Jesus when they were confronted with who he really is. And we're going to see how unexpected and powerful and beautiful Jesus really is. And our prayer is that we would all meet Jesus afresh as we work through the next four weeks together. Well, I wonder, um, have you ever got caught up in a fad before? Um, there's a picture there of four fads. And fads are funny because they're really popular for a short time, and then they seem to disappear. But for a small, committed, core group of followers, um, they think that those things are still really awesome. So perhaps this is risky, and with some trepidation, um, I'm going to unpack four of these fads for you, knowing that some of you love these things and might get offended. So, first of all, Crocs. Let's just be honest about Crocs. They are awful. They're not particularly comfortable. They look terrible. But there are those out there, maybe even watching at home, who love them. So I'm sorry, but I've never owned a pair and I never will. Or how about Lance Armstrong's Live Strong bracelet? Do you remember those? There was a time when these were absolutely everywhere. And they weren't just for the former um, cyclist's charity, the disgraced cyclist charity, but everyone got on the bandwagon. When was the last time you saw someone wearing one? Or MySpace. Back in the day, the social media platform was very cool and very popular. Now, I'll show my age and say that Facebook has well and truly taken over, and it has. But the youth of today tell me that Facebook is for old people. And finally, Pokemon Go. It was massive when it first came out. Um, at the time, my students spoke about nothing else. And in the first month, they uh, made 207 million US after that game was released. And at its peak, Pokemon Go was drawing well over 250 million people a month. But by December 2016, that number had fallen to less than 50 million, and you don't really hear about it being spoken about today. And there's yo-yos, and there's Rubik's Cubes, and there's permed hair. The list just goes on and on. And in the early days of Jesus' public ministry, I guess the question was, fad or something more? There would have been plenty of rabbis, heaps of preachers, even some who claimed to be the one they'd been waiting for. So was Jesus... Just another one to add to the list? Or was there something more enduring and more significant going on? So if you've got a Bible, please open it or turn it on um, to Luke chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 17. One day, Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, 
They went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat, through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. So imagine being there. Imagine being part of that crowd, straining to see and straining to hear every word that Jesus spoke. He had just started his public ministry and already word had travelled far and wide about him. Jesus had been driven out of Nazareth. He had cast out an impure spirit. He had healed many. He healed a leper. And Jesus had also started calling his disciples a ragtag group of uneducated, very normal people who would not have been my first pick. Word was travelling fast and the crowds were big. So imagine being in that house. The crowd is too big for the house that Jesus was teaching in and everyone is hanging on every single word. Just who is this guy? And then there's a scratching sound coming from the roof above. Everyone can hear it, but they just ignore it because they want to listen. But the sound doesn't go away. If, if anything, it's getting louder. And then dust starts falling onto the crowd below. Someone starts sneezing uncontrollably. And now it's not just dust, but the debris is getting bigger. Big chunks of roof are falling onto the crowd. One on earth is happening. People's attention is well and truly off Jesus now. Everyone's looking up and even Jesus himself has stopped talking. He's looking up too. And the hole in the roof just gets bigger and bigger and you can see people up there. They're, they're digging a hole in the roof. There's people shouting down at Jesus through that hole and, and it's a big hole. So big that they're able to lower someone on a mat down into the room where Jesus has been teaching. This has to be the ultimate sermon stopper. And to be honest, I need to come clean about something. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of realising that you were wrong about something or being a bit slow on something. Well, when we were new to CCW at the beginning of the year, Matthew came up here and interrupted Danny's sermon and started whacking him with a pool noodle. <laughs> or something similar. And he's been up here a few times and interrupted quite a few times, so my memory tends to get blurred, but I'm pretty sure that's what happened. And to be honest, I had absolutely no idea what was going on, and it actually took me quite a few minutes to realise that it was planned, that it was scripted. I actually thought that it was a legitimate, really, really awkward interruption. <laughs> and I was just so impressed by how calmly Danny was dealing with this really awkward situation, and I thought to myself, there is no way, absolutely no way that I'm ever preaching here if stuff like that is going to happen. Because every preacher's worst nightmare is an awkward interruption from the audience. So back to the hole in the roof. I feel so much better having shared that. <laughs> but back to the hole in the roof. Everyone knows who it is that's getting lowered down. It's one of the local beggars, the one who can't walk. He's the paralysed man that, lo that the locals would recognise. What an incredible scene. Now, what would you expect Jesus to say and to do? So many questions come to mind when I read this. What's Jesus going to do? Whose house is it? Are they angry about their wrecked roof? Who's going to pay for the repair job? Who's going to clean up the mess? That would be a seriously bizarre insurance claim. <laughs> and so we read on from verse 20. 
When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Why did Jesus say that? If I'm the paralyzed guy, <laughs> thanks Jesus, but did you, did you notice my little leg problem? <laughs> there are quite a few things going on. It's almost certain that the paralyzed man would have felt rejected by many in the community around him and even by God too. For those people, they thought it was easy to see who was blessed by God and who wasn't, who God had accepted and who God hadn't. And there was a belief, and I think it's still around to a point, that when something bad happens to somebody else or to us, it's a direct punishment for sin. Now, don't get me wrong, sin has natural consequences. But Jesus addressed this issue in Luke 13. Now that, and it says this, There were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus, Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered that way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no but unless you repent, you too will perish. Yes, our sin has consequences, but directly, directly attributing awful events in people's lives to, to specific sins is a slippery slope. So when Jesus announces that this paralyzed man's sins are forgiven, it is beautiful. Who knows what this man thought about God? Did he believe people when they muttered under their breath as they walked past? Did he carry around this lingering thought that his plight was some sort of divine punishment for his sin or his parents' sin. Jesus is publicly announcing that forgiveness is on offer for this paralyzed man. And Jesus is directly challenging the idea that his situation in life could be traced to a specific sin. Jesus accepts this guy and it's beautiful. But of course, there's a lot more going on here and Jesus is making a very big and very significant claim about his identity. So we read on, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? This showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees and teachers of the law really goes to the heart of who Jesus is because they're right. Only God can forgive sins. Imagine if there was a dispute between two of your friends, an ongoing feud that had festered and deteriorated and wrecked the relationship over many years. Now, it would be really weird and really inappropriate for you to insert yourself into that situation and just announce that your sins are forgiven and you guys are back to being friends. It's all finished, it's all done, it's all sorted. Or you couldn't walk into a courtroom and just announced that the criminal in the dock was forgiven and could just walk out of there freely, you just wouldn't have the authority to do that. This claim by Jesus is huge, and he's right. Anyone can just walk around and announce that someone's sins are forgiven. And so he asks from verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. 
Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Jesus proves that he has the authority on earth to forgive sins, something only God has authority to do. And he does this by doing something miraculous, by doing something that only God could do. And in the midst of that is Jesus' favourite title for himself, the Son of Man. And it is important that we understand what this title means and where it comes from. This title, the Son of Man, comes from Daniel's dream, and you can read it in Daniel chapter 7. And in this dream, Daniel sees four beasts coming out of a dark, violent sea. The fourth is more mutant and violent than the rest, and it brings violence and destruction and death to the inhabitants of the earth. And Daniel is told that the beasts represent prideful kings and their empires. Next, he sees into God's throne room, and there's a courtroom set up. The beasts are going to be judged but there's more than one divine throne. And Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man riding a cloud into God's throne room. And this Son of Man sits on the divine throne to rule the world. And all humanity worships and serves this Son of Man along with God. And this is from Daniel 7, from verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is claiming to be that son of man. And he makes the claim often. He is claiming to be the God human who they had been waiting so long for. And indeed, they were waiting for this son of man. This son of man, he would come with authority to judge the evil kings and empires of the world and restore God's blessing. The son of man, who like David, would be a powerful king, who would smite God's enemies. The son of man, who would drive out the Romans and restore Israel to its rightful place. But surely, surely that couldn't be Jesus, could it? Some self-announcing peasant rabbi from Nazareth. Of course, Jesus knew who he was. He was the son of man from Daniel 7. But he was also the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 that pointed to one, and it says this, who had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in Mark 10, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in Matthew 26, Jesus said to the high priest during his trial, I say to you, all of you, from now on you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. As Daniel 7 pointed to, Jesus was exalted 
but his, his exaltation came in a contrary way. He was lifted up, but it was onto a cross. He was given authority, but his crown wasn't made out of gold or precious stones. It was made out of thorns. He confronted all the evil and the injustice in the world by letting it give him the worst, by allowing himself to be nailed to the cross. But he rose again and will return to ultimately finish off the work. So going back to the hole in the roof, Jesus was claiming to be the Son of Man. He was to come to deal with the mess of sin as seen in Daniel's dream. And this was an enormous claim. So all of this is good. And I love the way the Bible is one unified whole that points us to Jesus. But what does that mean for you and me today? Ask yourself, who are you in that crowd? Are you the paralytic who's carrying around a lifetime of baggage? Yes, you're a sinner and yes, you need God's forgiveness, but you certainly don't need telling. You know full well but you doubt whether or not God even cares about you at all. Look into Jesus' face and hear those beautiful words. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Well, are you in the crowd? You've been around Jesus and his followers for a while, but you've never really spoken directly to him. You've never taken the plunge and fallen at his feet. Well, look at Jesus. Look into his face and ask him to forgive you. Hear him say to you, friend, your sins are forgiven. Or are you one of the Pharisees, very happy to hear about God's forgiveness and mercy when it comes to you and what you've done? What you've done isn't so bad anyway. But like the older brother in the parable, you've actually found yourself on the outside of the forgiveness party refusing to come in. Because apparently you never disobey your father's orders and the ones inside don't deserve to be in there. We live in a world full of options and competing visions of the good life. And I think it's important that we discern these and understand these competing visions. Here's the thing. The good life, according to the world, is wrapped up in a process of self-discovery. Carl Truman calls this expressive individualism. Expressive individualism holds that human beings are defined by their individual psychological core, and that the purpose of life is allowing that core to find social expression in relationships. Anything that challenges it is deemed oppressive. And true freedom or being true to yourself occurs when you look within, discover yourself, and then broadcast that self in every sphere of life. That could be relationships, it could be online, it could be at work, it could be at school, everywhere. And anyone or any institution that gets in the way is being oppressive. Freedom, happiness, contentment, and all the good things are experienced when we look within and live out of that consistently. But here's the problem. When I look within, I get a really mixed sense of who I am. My circumstances impact how I see myself, my health, 
my family life, my work satisfaction, how church is going, all of these things colour my sense of self, but it's more fundamental than that. I'm sinful and there's parts of my character that I really don't like. And what Jesus said in Luke 7 rings true. He said, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So I guess the question is, what do you need? If I'm honest, the world's advice to look within doesn't really cut it because I'm a complicated mix of good and bad, regrets and successes, things that I'm proud of and things that I'm ashamed of. So whoever you identify with in that crowd, the paralytic, the onlooker, or the Pharisee, stop looking within. You need Jesus. No matter who you are, there's no substitute for looking Jesus in the face and hearing him say, friend, your sins are forgiven. He's got all the authority in the world to do it, and he's done everything to make it possible. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy and your kindness. And thank you that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, what circumstance we're in, where our heart is, whether it's hard towards you or soft, you're there and you're wanting us to look up, look into your face and hear those words, your sins are forgiven. It's on offer. Please help us to hold on to that, hold on to it dearly so that that can be our reality. Amen.